0: All the world needs a jolt. Social movements and political crisis in medieval Europe. All the world must suffer a big jolt. There will be such a game that the ungodly will be thrown off their seats, and the downtrodden will rise. Thomas Munzer, open denial of the false belief of the godless world, on the testimony of the Gospel of Luke, presented to miserable and pitiful Christendom, in memory of its error, 1524. There is no denying that, after centuries of struggle, exploitation does continue to exist. Only its form has changed. The surplus labor extracted here and there by the masters of today's world is not smaller in proportion to the total amount of labor than the surplus extracted long ago. But the change in the conditions of exploitation is not, in my view, negligible. What is important is the history, the striving for liberation. Pierre Docks Medieval Slavery and Liberation 1982 Introduction A history of women and reproduction in the transition to capitalism must begin with the struggles that the European medieval proletariat small peasants artisans day laborers waged against feudal power in all its forms Only if we invoke, evoke those struggles with their rich cargo of demands, social and political aspirations, and antagonistic practices, can we understand the role that women had in the crisis of feudalism, and why their power had to be destroyed for capitalism to develop, as it was by the three-century-long persecution of the witches. From the vantage point of this struggle, we can also see that capitalism was not the product of an evolutionary development bringing forth economic forces that were maturing in the womb of the old order. Capitalism was the response of the feudal lords, the patrician merchants, the bishops and popes to a centuries-long social conflict that, in the end, shook their power and truly gave all the world a big jolt. Capitalism was the counter-revolution that destroyed the possibilities that had emerged from the anti-feudal struggle. Possibilities which, if realized, might have spared us the immense destruction of lives in the natural environment that has marked the advance of capitalist relations worldwide. This much must be stressed, for the belief that capitalism evolved from feudalism and represents a higher form of social life has not yet been dispelled. How the history of women intersects with that of capitalist development cannot be grasped, however if we concern ourselves only with the classic terrains of class struggle. Labour services wage rates, rents and tithes, and ignore the new visions of social life and the transformation of gender relations which these conflicts produced. These were not negligible. It is in the course of the anti-feudal struggle that we find the first evidence in European history of a grassroots women's movement opposed to the established order and contributing to the construction of alternative models of communal life. The struggle against feudal power also produced the first organized attempts to challenge the dominant sexual norms and establish more egalitarian relations between women and men. Combined with the refusal of bonded labor and commercial relations, these conscious forms of social transgression constructed a powerful alternative not only to feudalism, but to the capitalist order by which feudalism was replaced, demonstrating that another world was possible, and urging us to question why it was not realized. This chapter searches for some answers to this question, while examining how the relations between women and men and the reproduction of labor power were defined in opposition to feudal rule. The social struggles of the Middle Ages must also be remembered because they wrote a new chapter in the history of liberation. At their best, they called for an egalitarian social order, based upon the sharing of wealth and the refusal of hierarchies and authoritarian rule. These were to remain utopias. Instead of the heavenly kingdom, whose advent was prophesied in the preaching of the heretics and millenarian movements. What issued from the demise of feudalism were disease, war, famine, and death, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as represented in Albrecht Dürer's famous print, True Harbingers of the New Capitalist Era. Nevertheless, the attempts that the medieval proletariat made to turn the world upside down must be reckoned with, for despite their defeat, they put the feudal system into crisis, And in their time, they were genuinely revolutionary, as they could not have succeeded without a radical reshaping of the social order. Reading the transition from the viewpoint of the anti-feudal struggle of the Middle Ages also helps us to reconstruct the social dynamics that lay in the background of the English enclosures and the conquest of the Americas. And above all, unearthed some of the reasons why, in the 16th and 17th centuries, the extermination of the witches and the extension of state control over every aspect of reproduction became the cornerstones of primitive accumulation.
1: Serfdom as a Class Relation While the anti-feudal struggles of the Middle Ages cast some light on the development of capitalist relations, their own political significance will remain hidden unless we frame them in the broader context of the history of serfdom, which was the dominant class relation in feudal society and, until the 14th century, the focus of anti-feudal struggle. Serfdom developed in Europe between the 5th and 7th centuries AD in response to the breakdown of the slave system on which the economy of imperial Rome had been built. It was the result of two related phenomena— By the 4th century, in the Roman territories and the new Germanic states, the landlords had to grant the slaves the right to have a plot of land and a family of their own in order to stem the revolts, and prevent their flight to the bush, where maroon communities were forming at the margins of the empire. At the same time, the landlords began to subjugate the free peasants who, ruined by the expansion of slave labor uh, and later Germanic invasions, turned to the lords for protection, although at the cost of their independence. Thus, while slavery was never completely abolished, a new class relation developed that homogenized the conditions of former slaves and free agricultural workers, placing all the peasantry in a subordinate condition so that, for three centuries, from the 9th to the 11th, peasant, rusticus, villainous, would be synonymous with serf, service. As a work relation and a judicial status, serfdom was an enormous burden. The serfs were bonded to the landlords, their persons and possessions were their master's property, and their lives were ruled in every respect by the law of the manor. Nevertheless, the Serfdom redefined the class relations in terms more favorable to the workers. Serfdom marked the end of gang labor, of life in the ergastula, and a lessening of the atrocious punishments, the iron collars, the burnings, the crucifixions, on which slavery had relied. On the feudal estates, the serfs were subjected to the law of the lord, but their transgressions were judged on the basis of customary agreements and, in time, even of a peer-based jury system. The most important aspect of serfdom, from the viewpoint of the changes it introduced in the master-servant relation, is that it gave the serfs direct access to the means of their reproduction in exchange for the work which they were bound to do on the lord's land, uh, the serfs received a plot of land uh, which they could use to support themselves and pass down to their children like a real inheritance, but simply paying them by simply paying a succession due. As Pierre Docs points out in Medieval Slavery and Liberation, this arrangement increased the serfs' autonomy and improved their living conditions, as they could now dedicate more time to the reproduction and the. Li- and negotiate the extent of their obligations, instead of being treated like chattels subject to an unconditional rule. Most important, having the effective use and possession of a plot of land meant that the serfs could always support themselves and, even at the peak of their confrontations with the lords, they could not easily be forced to bend because of the fear of starvation. True, the lord could throw recalcitrant serfs off the land, but this was rarely done, given the difficulty in recruiting new laborers in a fairly closed economy and the collective nature of peasants' troubles. This is why, as Marx noted, on the feudal manner, the exploitation of labor always depended on the direct use of force. The experience of self-reliance, which the peasants gained from having access to land, also had a political and ideological potential. In time, the serfs began to look at the land they occupied as their own, and to view as intolerable the restrictions that the aristocracy imposed on their freedom. Land to the tillers, the demand that has echoed through the 20th century from the Mexican and Russian revolutions to the contemporary struggles against land privatization, is a battle cry which the medieval serfs would have certainly recognized as their own. But the strength of the bilans stemmed from the fact that access to land was a reality for them. With the use of land also came the use of commons, meadows, forests, lakes, wild pastures that provided crucial resources for the peasant economy – wood for fuel, timber for building, fish ponds, grazing grounds for animals – and fostered community cohesion and cooperation. In northern Italy, control over these resources even provided the basis for the development of communal self-administrations. So important were the commons in the political economy and struggles of the medieval rural population that their memory still excites our imagination, projecting the vision of a world where goods can be shared in solidarity, rather than the desire for self-aggrandizement can be the substance of social relations. The medieval servile community fell short of these goals, and should not be idealized as an example of communalism. In fact, its example reminds us that neither communalism nor localism can be a guarantee of egalitarian relations unless the community controls its means of subsistence and all its members have equal access to them. This was not the case with the serfs on feudal manners. Despite the prevalence of collective forms of work and collective contracts with the landlords, and despite local character of the peasant economy, the medieval village was not a community of equals. As established by a vast documentation coming from every country of Western Europe, there were many social differences within the peasantry that separated free peasants and those of servile status, rich and poor peasants, peasants with secure land tenure and landless laborers working for a wage on the lords' demesne, and women and men. Land was usually given to men and transmitted through the male lineage, though there were many cases of women who inherited it and managed it in their name. Women were also excluded from the offices to which better-off male peasants were appointed and, to all effects, they had second-class status. This is perhaps why their names are rarely mentioned in the manorial registers, except for those of the courts in which the serfs' transgressions were recorded. Nevertheless, female serfs were less dependent on their male kin, less differentiated from them physically, socially, and psychologically, and were less subservient to men's needs than the free women were later to be in capitalist society. Women's dependence on men within the servile community was limited by the fact that over the authority of their husbands and fathers prevailed that of the lords, who claimed possession of the serf's possession persons and property, and tried to control every aspect of their lives, from work to marriage and sexual behavior. It was the lords that commanded women's work and social relations, deciding, for instance, whether a widow should remarry and who should be her spouse, in some areas even claiming the ius primae noctis, the right to sleep with the serf's wife on her wedding night. The authority of male serfs over their female relatives was thoroughly limited by the fact that the land was generally given to the family unit, and women not only worked on it, but could dispose of the products of their labor, and did not have to depend on their husbands for support. The partnership of the wife in land possession was so well understood in England that, when a vilain couple married, it was common for the man to come and turn the land back to the Lord, taking it again in both his name and that of his wife. Furthermore, Since work on the servile farm was organized on a subsistence basis, the sexual division of labor in it was less pronounced and less discriminating than in the capitalist farm. In the feudal village, no social separation existed between the production of goods and the reproduction of the workforce. All work contributed to the family's sustenance. Women worked in the fields, in addition to raising children, cooking, washing, spinning, and keeping an herb garden. Their domestic activities were not devalued, and did not involve different social relations from those of men, as they would later in a money economy, when housework would cease to be viewed as real work. If we also take into account that, in medieval society, collective relations prevailed over familial ones, and most of the tasks that female search performed, washing, spinning, harvesting, and tending to animals on the commons, were done in cooperation with other women, we then realize that the sexual division of labor, far from being a source of isolation, was a source of power and protection for women. It was the basis for an intense female sociality and solidarity that enabled women to stand up to men, despite the fact that the church preached women's submission to men, and canonic laws sanctified the husband's right to beat his wife. The position of women on the feudal manor cannot be treated, however, as if it were such a static reality, for the power of women and their relations with men were, at all times, determined by the struggles which their communities fought against the landlords and the changes that the struggles produced in the master-servant relation
0: the struggle on the commons. By the end of the 14th century, the revolt of the peasantry against the landlords had become endemic, massified, and frequently armed. However, the organizational strength that the peasants demonstrated in this period was the outcome of a lawn conflict that, more or less openly, ran through the Middle Ages. Contrary to the schoolbook, be- Schoolbook portrait of feudal society as a static world in which each estate exep- accepted its designated place in the social order. The picture that emerges from a study of the feudal manner is rather that of relentless class struggle. As the records of the English manorial courts indicate, the medieval village was a theater of daily warfare. At times, this reached moments of great tension, when the villager, villagers killed the bailiff or attacked their lord's castle. Most frequently, however, it consisted of an endless litigation by which the serfs tried to limit the abuses of the lords, fix their burdens, and reduce the many tributes which they owed them in exchange for the use of the land. The main objective of the serfs was to keep hold on their surplus labor and products and broaden the sphere of their economic and judicial rights. These two aspects of servile struggle struggle were closely connected as many obligations issued from the serfs' legal status. Thus, in 13th century England, both on the lay and ecclesiastical estates, Male peasants were frequently fined for claiming that they were not serfs but free men, a challenge that could result in a bitter litigation pursued even by appeal to the royal court. Peasants were also fined for refusing to bake their bread at the oven of the lords or grind their grain or olives at their mills, which allowed them to avoid the onerous taxes that the lords imposed for the use of these facilities. However, the most important terrain of servile struggle was the work that, on certain days of the week, the serfs had to carry out on the land of the lords. These labor services were the burdens that most immediately affected the serfs' lives, and through the 13th century, they were the central issue in the servile struggle for freedom. The serfs' attitudes, attitude towards the corvée As labor services were also called, transpires through the entries in the books of the manorial courts, where the penalties imposed on the tenants were recorded. By the mid 13th century, the evidence speaks for a massive withdrawal of labor. The tenants would neither go nor send their children to work on the land of the lords when summoned at harvest time, or they would go to the fields too late so that the crops would spoil or they worked sloppily, taking long breaks and generally maintaining an insubordinate attitude. Hence the Lord's need for constant and close supervision and vigilance, as evinced by this recommendation. Let the bailiff and the messer be all the time with the plowmen, to see that they do their work well and thoroughly, and at the end of the day see how much they have done. And because customary servants neglect their work, it is necessary to guard against their fraud. Further, it is necessary that they are overseen often. And beside the bailiff must oversee all, um, that they work well, and if they do not do well, let them be reproved. A similar situation is portrayed in Piers Plowman, William Langland's allegorical poem where in one scene the laborers, who had been busy in the morning, passed the afternoon sitting and singing and, in another one, idle people flocked in at harvest time seeking no deed to do but to drink and to sleep. Also the obligation to provide military services at wartime was strongly resisted. As H.S. Bennett reports, force was always needed to recruit in the English villages, and a medieval commander rarely managed to keep his men at war, for those who enlisted deserted at the first opportunity after pocketing their pay. Exemplary are the payrolls of the Scottish campaign of the year 1300, which indicate that while 16,000 recruits had been ordered to enlist in June, by mid-July only 7,600 could be mustered, and this was the crest of the wave. By August, little more than 3,000 remained. As a result, increasingly the king had to rely on pardoned criminals and outlaws to bolster his army. Another source of conflict was the use of non-cultivated lands, including woods, lakes, hills, which the serfs considered a collective property. We cannot go to the woods, the serfs declared in a mid-12th century English chronicle. And take what we want, take fish from the fish pond and game from the forests. We'll have our will in the woods, the waters, and the meadows. Still, the most bitter struggles were those against the taxes and burdens that issued from the jurisdictional power of the nobility. These included the manomoria, a tax which the lord levied when a serf died, the merchetta, a tax on marriage that increased when a serf married someone from another manor, the Harriet, an inheritance tax paid by the heir of a deceased serf for the right to gain entry to his holding, usually consisting of the best beast of the deceased, and worst of all, the Talage, a sum of money arbitrarily decided that the lords could exact at will. Last but not least was the tithe, a tenth of the peasant income that was extracted, exacted by the clergy, but usually collected by the lords in the clergy's name. Together with the labour service, these taxes, against nature and freedom, were the most resented among the feudal dues. For not being compensated by any allotments of land or other benefits, they revealed all the arbitrariness of feudal power thus they were strenuously resisted typical was the attitude of the serfs of the monks of Dunstable, stable who in 1299 declared that they would rather go down to hell than be beaten in this matter of Tallage, and after much controversy they bought their freedom from it similarly in 1280 the serfs of Haddon, a village of yorkshire let it be understood that, if the talage was not abolished, they would rather go to live in the nearby towns of Revanceded and Hull, which have good harbors, growing daily, and no talage. These were no idle threats. The flight to the city or town was a constant component of servile struggle, so that, again and again, on some English manners, men are reported to be fugitives and dwelling in the neighboring towns and although order is given that they be brought back, the town continues to shelter them. To these forms of open confrontation, we must add the many invisible forms of resistance, for which subjugated peasants have been famous in all times and places. Foot-dragging, dissimulation, false compliance, feigned ignorance, desertion, pilfering, smuggling, poaching these everyday forms of resistance, stubbornly carried on over the years, without which no adequate account of class relations is possible, were rife in the medieval village. This may explain the meticulousness with which the servile burdens uh, were specified in the manorial records. For instance, the manorial records Often do not say simply that a man must plough, sow, and harrow one acre of the Lord's land. They say he must plough it with so many oxen as he has in his plough, harrow it with his own horse and sack. Services, too, were remembered in minute detail. We must remember cockmen of Elton, who admitted that they were bound to stack the Lord's hay in his meadow and again in his barnyard, but maintained that they were not bound in custom to load it into carts to be carried from the first place to the second. In some areas of Germany, where the dues included yearly donations of eggs and poultry, tests of fitness were devised in order to prevent the serfs from handing down to the lords the worst among their chickens. The hen, then, is placed in front of a fence or a gate. If frightened, she has the strength to fly or scramble over, the bailiff must accept her, she is fit. A gosling, again, must be accepted if it is mature enough to pluck grass without losing its balance and sitting down ignominiously. Such minute regulations testify to the difficulty of enforcing the medieval social contract and the variety of battlefields available to the combative tenant or village. Servile duties and rights were regulated by customs, but their interpretation, too, was an object of much dispute. The invention of traditions was a common practice in the confrontation between landlords and peasants, as both would try to divine them or forget them, um, until a time came towards the middle of the 13th century when the lords put them down in writing.
1: Liberty and Social Division Politically, the first outcome of the servile struggles was the concession to many villages, particularly in Northern Italy and France, of privileges and charters that fixed the burdens and granted an element of autonomy in the running of the village community, providing, at times, for true forms of local self-government. These charters stipulated the fines that were to be meted out by the manorial courts, and established rules for judicial proceedings, thus eliminating or reducing the possibility of arbitrary arrests and other abuses. They also lightened the serfs' duty to enlist as soldiers and abolish or fixed the tallage. They often granted the liberty to hold stolage, that is, to sell goods at a local market and, more rarely, the right to alienate land. Between 1177 and 1350, in Lorraine alone, 280 charters were conceded. However, the most important resolution of the master serf conflict was the commutation of labor services with money payments money-rents, money-taxes, that placed the feudal relation on a more contractual basis. With this monumentous development, serfdom practically ended, but, like many workers' victories, which only in part satisfy the original demands, commutation too co-opted the goals of the struggle, functioning as a means of social division and contributing to the disintegration of the feudal village. To the well-to-do peasants, who, possessing large tracts of land, could earn enough money to buy their blood and employ other labourers, commutation must have appeared as a great step on the road to economic and personal independence, for the lords lessened their control over their tenants when they no longer depended directly on their work. But the majority of poorer peasants, who possessed only a few acres of land, barely sufficient for their survival, lost even the little they had. Compelled to pay their dues and money, they went into chronic debt, borrowing against future harvests, a process that eventually caused many to lose their land. As a result, by the 13th century, when commutation spread throughout Western Europe, Social divisions in the rural areas deepened, and part of the peasantry underwent a process of proletarianization. As Bronisław Jeremek writes, 13th century documents contain increasing amounts of information about landless peasants who managed to echo a living on the margins of village life by tending to flocks. One finds increasing number of gardeners, landless or almost landless peasants, who earned their living by hiring out their services. In southern France, the brassiers lived entirely by selling the strength of their arms, and hiring themselves out to richer peasants or landed gentry. From the beginning of the 14th century, the tax register showed a marked increase in the number of impoverished peasants, who appear in these documents as indigents, poor men, or even beggars. The commutation to money rent had two other negative consequences. First, it made it more difficult for the producers to measure their exploitation because as soon as the labor services were commuted into money payments, the peasants could no longer differentiate between the work they did for themselves and that which they did for their landlords. Commutation also made it possible for the now free tenants to employ and exploit other workers, so that, in a further development, it promoted the growth of independent peasant property, turning the old self-employing possessors of the land into a capitalist tenant. The monetization of economic life, then, did not benefit all people, contrary to what is claimed by supporters of the market economy, who welcome it as the creation of a new common, replacing land bondage, and introducing in social life the criteria of objectivity, rationality, and even personal freedom. With the spread of monetary relations, values certainly changed, even among the clergy, who began to reconsider the Aristotelian doctrine of the sterility of money, and, not coincidentally, to revise its views concerning the redeeming quality of charity to the poor. But their effects were destructive and divisive, money in the market began to split the peasantry by transforming income differences into class differences and producing a mass of poor people who could survive only on the basis of periodic donations. To the growing influence of money, we must also attribute the systematic attack to which Jews were subjected starting in the 12th century and the steady deterioration of their legal and social status in the same period. There is, in fact, a revealing correlation between the displacement of the Jews by Christian competitors as moneylenders to kings, popes, and the higher clergy, and the new discriminatory rules, examples wearing of distinct clothing, that were adopted by the clergy against them, as well as their expulsion from England and France. Degraded by the church, further separated by the Christian population, and forced to confine their moneylending, one of the occupations available to them, to the village level, the Jews became an easy target for indebted peasants who often vented on them their anger at the rich. Women, too, in all classes, were most negatively affected by the increase in commercialization of life, for their access to property and income was further reduced by it. In the Italian commercial towns, women lost the right to inherit a third of their husband's property. In the rural areas, they were further excluded from land possession, especially when single or widowed. As a result, by the 13th century, they were leading the movement away from the country, being the most numerous among the rural immigrants to the towns, and, by the 15th century, women formed but a large percentage of the population of the cities. Here, most of them lived in poor conditions, holding low-paid jobs as maids, hucksters, retail traders, often fined for lack of license, spinsters, members of the lower guilds, and prostitutes. However, living in the urban centres among the most combative parts of the medieval population gave them a new social autonomy. City laws did not free women; few could afford to buy the city freedom, as the privileges connected with city life were called. But in the city, women's subordination to male tutelage was reduced, as they could now live alone. Or with their children as heads of families, or could form new communities, often sharing their dwellings with other women. While usually the poorest members of the urban society, in time women gained access to many occupations that later would be considered male jobs. In the medieval towns, women worked as smiths, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, hat makers, ale brewers, wool carters, and retailers. In Frankfurt, there were approximately 200 occupations women participated between 1300 and 1500. In England, 72 out of 85 guilds included women among their members. Some guilds, including silk-making, were dominated by them. In others, female employment was as high as that of men. By the 14th century, women were also becoming school teachers as well as doctors and surgeons, and were beginning to compete with university-trained men, gaining at times high reputation. 16 female doctors, among them several Jewish women specialized in surgery or eye therapy, were hired in the 14th century by the municipality of Frankfurt which, like other city administrations, offered his population a system of public health care. Female doctors, as well as midwives or sage femmes, were dominant in obstetrics, either in the pay of city governments or supporting themselves with the compensation they received from their patients. After the caesarean cut was introduced in the 13th century, female obstetrics were the only ones who practiced it. As women gained more autonomy, their presence in social life began to be recorded more frequently. In the sermons of the priests, who scolded their indiscipline, in the records of the tribunals where they went to denounce those who abused them, in the city ordinances regulating prostitution, among the thousands of non-combatants who followed the armies, and, above all, in the new popular movements, especially that of the heretics. We will see later the role that women played in the heretic movements. Here, suffice it to say that, in response to the new female independence, we see the beginning of a misogynist backlash most evident in the satires of the fabliaux where we find the first traces of what historians have defined as the struggle for the breaches.
0: The millenarian and the heretic movements. It was the growing landless proletariat which emerged in the wake of commutation that was the protagonist in the 12th and 13th centuries of the millenarian movements, in which we find, beside impoverished peasants, all the wretched of feudal society, prostitutes, defrocked priests, urban and rural day laborers. The traces of the millenarians' brief apparition on the historical scene are scanty, and they tell us a story of short-lived revolts, and of a peasantry brutalized by poverty, and by the clergy's inflammatory preaching that accompanied the launching of the Crusades. The significance of their rebellion, however, is that it inaugurated a new type of struggle, already projected beyond the confines of the manor and stimulated by aspirations to total change. Not surprisingly, the rise of millenarianism was accompanied by the spread of prophecies and apocalyptic visions announcing the end of the world and the imminence of the Last Judgment, not as visions of a more or less distant future to be awaited, but as impending events in which many now living could take active part. A typical example of millenarianism was the movement sparked by the appearance, appearance of the pseudo-Baldwin in Flanders in 1224-1225. to 1225. The man, a hermit, had claimed to be the popular Baldwin the Ninth, who had been killed in Constantinople in 1204. This could not be proven but his promise of a new world provoked a civil war in which the Flemish textile workers became his ardent supporters. These poor people, weavers, fullers, closed ranks around him, presumably convinced that he was going to give them silver and gold and full social reform. Similar to this movement were those of the pastoreaux, shepherds, peasants and urban workers who swept through northern France around 1251, burning and pillaging the houses of the rich, demanding a betterment of their condition, and the movement of the flagellants that, starting from Umbria in Italy, spread in several countries in 1260, the date when, according to the prophecy of the abbot Wachim da Flora, the world was supposed to end. It was not the millenarian movement, however, but popular heresy that best expressed the search by the medieval proletariat for a concrete alternative to feudal relations and its resistance to the growing money economy. Heresy and millenarianism are often treated as one subject, but while a precise distinction cannot be drawn, there are significant differences between the two movements. The millenarian movements were spontaneous without an organizational structure or program. Usually a specific event or a charismatic individual spurred them on, but as soon as they were met by force they collapsed. By contrast, the heretic movement was a conscious attempt to create a new society. The main heretical sects had a social program that also reinterpreted the religious tradition and they were well organized from the viewpoint of their reproduction, the dissemination of their ideas, and even their self-defense. Not surprisingly, they had a long duration, despite the extreme persecution to which they were subjected, and they played a crucial role in the anti-feudal struggle. Today, little is known about the many heretic sects, Cathars, Waldenzies, the Poor of Lyon, Spirituals, Apostolics that for more than three centuries flourished among the lower classes in Italy, France, the Flanders, and Germany in what undoubtedly was the most important opposition of the Middle Ages. This is largely due to the ferocity with which they were persecuted by the Church, which spared no effort to erase every trace of their doctrines. Crusades, like the one moved against the Albigensians, were called against the heretics, as they were called to liberate the Holy Land from the infidels. By the thousands, heretics were burned at the stake, and to eradicate their presence, the Pope created one of the most perverse institutions ever recorded in the history of state repression, the Holy Inquisition. Nevertheless, as Charles H. Lee, among others, has shown in his monumental history of the persecution of heresy, even on the basis of the limited records available to us, we can form an impressive picture of their activities and creeds and the role of heretical resistance in the anti-feudal struggle. Although influenced by Eastern religions brought to Europe by merchants and crusaders, popular heresy was less a deviation from the Orthodox doctrine than a protest movement, aspiring to a radical democratization of social life. Heresy was the equivalent of liberation theology for the medieval proletariat. It gave a frame to people's demands for spiritual renewal and social justice, challenging both the church and secular authority by appeal to a higher truth. It denounced social hierarchies, private property, and the accumulation of wealth, and it disseminated among the people a new revolutionary conception of society that, for the first time in the Middle Ages, redefined every aspect of daily life, work, property, social reproduction, and the position of women, posing the question of emancipation in truly universal terms. The heretic movement also provided an alternative community structure that had an international dimension, enabling the members of the sects to lead a more autonomous life and to benefit from a wide support network made of contacts, schools, and safe houses, upon which they could rely for help and inspiration in times of need. Indeed, it is no exaggeration to say that the heretic movement was the first proletarian international. Such was the reach of the sects, particularly the Cathars and the Waldenses, and the links they established among themselves with the help of commercial fairs, pilgrimages, and the constant border crossing of refugees generated by the persecution. At the root of popular heresy was the belief that God no longer spoke through the clergy because of its greed, corruption, and scandalous behavior. Thus, the two major sects presented themselves as the true churches. However, the heretic's challenge was primarily a political one since to challenge the church was to confront at once the ideological pillar of feudal power the biggest landowner in europe and one of the institutions most responsible for the daily exploitation of the peasantry by the eleventh century the church had become a despotic power that used its alleged divine investiture to govern with an iron fist and fill its coffers by endless means of extortion, selling absolutions, indulgences, and religious offices, calling the faithful to church only to preach to them the sanctity of the tithes, and making of all sacraments a market were common practice, from the pope to the village priest, so much so that the corruption of the clergy became proverbial throughout Christianity. Things degenerated to the point that the clergy could not bury the dead, baptize, or grant absolution from sin unless it received some compensation. Even the communion became an occasion for a bargain, and if an unjust demand was resisted, the recalcitrant was excommunicated, and then had to pay for reconciliation in addition to the original sum. In this context, the propagation of the heretical doctrines not only channeled the contempt that people felt for the clergy, it gave them confidence in their views and instigated their resistance to clerical exploitation. Taking the lead from the New Testament, the heretics taught that Christ had no property and that if the church wanted to regain its spiritual power, it should divest itself from all its possessions. They also taught that the sacraments were not valid when administered by sinful priests, that the exterior forms of worship, buildings, images, symbols, should be discarded because only inner belief mattered. They also exhorted people not to pay the tithes and denied the existence of purgatory, whose invention had been for the clergy a source of lucre through paid masses and the sales of indulgences. In turn, the church used the charge of heresy to attack every form of social and political insubordination. In 1377, when the cloth workers in Ypres, Flanders, took arms against their employers, they were not only hanged as rebels, but were burned by the Inquisition as heretics. There are also records of female weavers being threatened with excommunication, for not having delivered promptly the product of their work to the merchants or not having properly done their work. In 1234, to punish his peasant tenants who refused to pay the tithes, the Bishop of Bremen called a crusade against them, as though they were heretics. But heretics were persecuted also by the secular authorities, from the emperor to the urban patricians, who realized that the heretic appealed to the true religion had subversive implications and questioned the foundations of their power. Heresy was as much a critique of social hierarchies and economic exploitation as it was a denunciation of clerical corruption. Volpe points out, The rejection of all forms of authority and a strong anti-commercial sentiment were common elements among the sects. Many heretics shared the ideal of apostolic poverty, and the desire to return to the simple communal life that had characterized the primitive church. Some, like the poor of Lyon and the Brethren of the Free Spirit, lived on donated alms. Others supported themselves by manual labor. Still others experimented with communism, like the early Tabarites in Bohemia, for whom the establishment of equality and communal ownership were as important as religious reform of the Waldenses, too, an inquisitor reported that they avoid all forms of commerce to avoid lies, frauds, and oaths, and he described them as walking barefoot, clad in woolen garments, owning nothing, and, like apostles, holding all things in common. The social content of heresy, however, is best described in the words of John Vall the intellectual leader of the English Peasant Rising of 1381, who denounced that were made in the image of God, but were treated like beasts, and added, Nothing will go well in England, as long as there will be gentlemen and villains. The most influential among the heretical sects, the Cathars, also stand out as unique in the history of European social movements because of their abhorrence for war, including the Crusades, their condemnation of capital punishment, which provoked the Church's first explicit pronouncement in support of the death penalty, and their tolerance for other religions. Southern France, their stronghold before the Crusade against the Albigensians, was a safe haven for Jews when anti-Semitism in Europe was mounting. Here, a fusion of Cathar and Jewish thought preceded the Kabbalah, the tradition of Jewish mysticism. The Cathars also rejected marriage and procreation and were strict vegetarians, both because they refused to kill animals and because they wished to avoid any food, like eggs and meats, resulting from sexual generation. This negative attitude towards natality has been attributed to the influence exerted on the Cathars by Eastern dualist sects like the Paulicians, a sect of iconoclasts who rejected procreation as the act by which the soul is entrapped in the material world, and above all, the Bogomils who prophesied in the 10th century among the peasantry of the Balkans. A popular movement born amidst peasants whose physical misery made unconscious made conscious of the wickedness of things, the Bogomils, preached that the visible world is the work of the devil, for in the world of God the good would be the first, and they refused to have children not to bring new slaves into this land of tribulations, as life on earth was called in one of their tracts. The influence of the Bogomils on the Cathars is well established, and it is likely that the Cathars' avoidance of marriage and procreation stemmed from a a similar refusal of a life degraded to mere survival, rather than from a death wish or from contempt for life. This is suggested by the fact that the Cathars' antinatalism was not associated with a degraded conception of women and sexuality as it is often the case with philosophies that despise life and the body. Women had an important place in the sects. As for the Cathars' attitude towards sexuality, it seems that while the perfected abstained from intercourse, the other members were not expected to practice sexual abstinence, and some scorned the importance which the Church assigned to chastity, arguing that it implied an overvaluation of the body. Some heretics attributed a mystical value to the sexual act, even treating it like a sacrament, and preached that practicing sex, rather than abstaining from it, was the best means to achieve a state of innocence. Thus, ironically, heretics were persecuted both as extreme ascetics and as libertines. The sexual creeds of the Cathars were obviously a sophisticated elaboration of themes developed through the influence through the encounter with Eastern heretical religions, but the popularity they enjoyed and the influence they exercised on other heresies also speak of a wider experiential reality rooted in the conditions of marriage and reproduction in the Middle Ages. We know that in medieval society, due to the limited availability of land and the protectionist restrictions which the guilds placed on entrance into the crafts, Neither for the peasants nor for the artisans was it possible or desirable to have many children, and indeed efforts were made by the peasant and artisan communities to control the number of children born among them. The most common method used to achieve this goal was the postponement of marriage, an event that, even among Orthodox Christians, came at a late age, if at all, the rule being no land, no marriage. A large number of young people, therefore, had to practice sexual abstinence or defy the church's ban on sex outside of wedlock, and we can imagine that the heretical rejection of procreation must have found some residence among them. In other words, it is conceivable that in the sexual and reproductive codes of the heretics, we may actually see the traces of a medieval attempt at birth control. This would explain why when a population growth became a major social concern at a time of severe democratic crisis and labor shortage in the late 14th century heresy became associated with reproductive crimes especially sodomy infanticide and abortion this is not to suggest that the heretics reproductive doctrines had a decisive demographic impact but rather that for at least two centuries A political climate was created in Italy, France, and Germany, whereby any form of contraception, including sodomy, i.e. anal sex, came to be associated with heresy. The threat which the sexual doctrines of the heretics posed for the orthodoxy must be viewed in the context of the effects which the Church made to establish its control over marriage and sexuality, which enabled it to place everyone— from the emperor to the poorest peasant, under its scrutiny and disciplinary rule.
1: The Politicization of Sexuality As Mary Condren has pointed out in The Serpent and the Goddess, 1989, a study of the penetration of Christianity into Celtic Ireland, the Church's attempt to regulate sexual behavior had a long history in Europe. From a very early period, after Christianity became a state religion in the 4th century, The clergy recognized the power that sexual desire gave women over men, and persistently tried to exercise it by identifying holiness with avoidance of women and sex. Expelling women from any moment of the liturgy, liturgy, and from the administration of the sacraments, trying to usurp women's life-giving magical powers by adopting feminine dress, and making sexuality an object of shame, all these were the means by which a patriarchal caste tried to break the power of women and erotic attraction. In this process... Sexuality was invested with a new significance, became a subject for confession, where the minutest details of one's most intimate bodily functions became a topic for discussion, and where the different aspects of sex were split apart into thought, word, intention, involuntary urges, and actual deeds of sex to form a science of sexuality. A privileged site for the reconstruction of the church's sexual canons are the penitentials, the handbooks that, starting from the 7th century, were issued as practical guides for the confessors. In the first volume of his History of Sexuality, 1978, Foucault stresses the role that these handbooks played in the production of sex as discourse and of a more polymorphous conception of sexuality in the 17th century. But the penitentials were already instrumental to the production of a new sexual discourse in the Middle Ages. These works demonstrate that the Church attempted to impose A true sexual catechism, minutely prescribing the positions permitted during intercourse actually, only one was allowed, the days on which sex could be practiced, with whom it was permissible, and with whom forbidden. The sexual supervision escalated in the twelfth century, when the Lateran councils of eleven twenty three and eleven thirty nine launched a new crusade against the common practice of clerical marriage and concubinage, and declared marriage a sacrament, whose vows no power on earth could dissolve. At this time, the limitations imposed by the penitentials on sexual act were also reiterated. Then, 40 years later, with the Third Lateran Council of 1179, the church intensified its attack on sodomy, targeting at once gay people and non-procreative sex, and for the first time it condemned homosexuality, the incontinence which is against nature. With the adoption of this repressive legislation, sexuality was completely politicized. We do not have yet the morbid obsession with which the Catholic Church later approached sexual matters, but already, by the 12th century, we see the Church not only peeping into the bedroom of its flock, but making of sexuality a state matter. The unorthodox sexual choices of the heretics must also be seen, then, as an anti-authoritarian stand, an attempt the heretics made to wrench their bodies from the grip of the clergy. A clear example of this anti-clerical rebellion was the rise, in the 13th century, of two new pantheist sects, like the Amalricians and the Brethren of the Free Spirit, who, against the Church's efforts to control sexual behavior, preach that God is in all of us and, consequently, that it is impossible for us to sin.
0: Women and heresy One of the most significant aspects of the heretic movement is the high status it assigned to women here they were considered equal. They had the same rights as men and could enjoy a social life and mobility, wandering, preaching, that nowhere else was available to them in the Middle Ages. In the heretical sects, above all, among the Cathars and the Waldenses, women had the right to administer the sacraments, preach, baptize, and even acquire sacerdotal orders. It is important that Waldis, split from the Orthodoxy because his bishop refused to allow women to preach, and it is said of the Cathars that they worshipped a female figure, the Lady of Thought, that influenced Dante's conception of Beatrice. The heretics also allowed women and men to share the same dwellings, even if they were not married, since they did not fear that this would necessarily lead to promiscuous behaviour. Heretical women and men often lived freely together, like brothers and sisters, as in the agapic communities of the early church. Women also formed their own communities. A typical case was that of the Beguines, lay women from the urban middle class who lived together, especially in Germany and Flanders, supporting themselves with their labor, outside of male control and without submitting to monastic rule. Not surprisingly, women are present in the history of heresy as in no other aspect of medieval life. According to Gottfried Koch, already in the 10th century, they formed a large part of the bogomils In the 11th century, it was again women who gave life to the heretical movements in France and Italy. At this time, female heretics came from the most humble ranks of the serfs, and, and they constituted a true women's movement, developing within the frame of the different heretical groups female heretics are also present in the records of the Inquisition. Of some we know that they were burned, of others that they were walled in for the rest of their lives. Can we say that this large female presence in the heretic sects was responsible for the heretics sexual revolution, or should we assume that the call for free love was a male ploy designed to gain easy access to women's sexual favors? These questions are not easily answered. We know, however, that women did try to control their reproductive function, as references to abortion and the use of contraceptives by women are numerous in the penitentials. Significantly, in view of the future criminalization of such practices during the witch hunt, contraceptives were referred to as sterility potions, and it was assumed that women were the ones who used them. In the early ages, in the early Middle Ages, the Church still looked upon these practices with a certain indulgence, prompted by the recognition that women may wish to limit their births because of economic reasons. Thus, in the Decretum, written by Burchard, Bishop of Worms, circa 1010, after the ritual question, have you done what some women are accustomed to do when they fornicate and wish to kill their offspring? act with malathisia and their herbs so that they kill or cut the embryo, or if they have not yet conceived, contrive that they do not conceive. It was stipulated that the guilty ones should do penance for ten years, but it was also observed that it makes a big difference whether she is a poor little woman and acted on account of the difficulty of feeding, or whether she acted to conceal a crime of fornication. Things changed drastically, however, as women's control over reproduction seemed to pose a threat to economic and social stability, as it did in the aftermath of the demographic catastrophe produced by the Black Death, the apocalyptic plague that, between 1347 and 1352, destroyed more than one-third of the European population. We will see later what role this demographic disaster played in the labor crisis of the late Middle Ages. Here we can notice that, after the spread of the plague, the sexual aspects of heresy became more prominent in its persecution, grotesquely distorted <coughs> in ways that anticipate the later representation of the witch's sabbat. By the mid-14th century, the inquisitors' reports were no longer content with accusing the heretics of sodomy and sexual license. Now heretics were accused of animal worship, including the infamous batium sub cauda, the kiss under the tail, and of indulging in orgiastic rituals, night flights, and child sacrifices. The Inquisitors also reported the, uh, the existence of a sect of devil-worshippers called Luciferans. Luciferans. Corresponding to this process, which marks the transition from the persecution of heresy to witch-burning, the figure of the heretic increasingly became that of a woman, so that, by the beginning of the 15th century, the main target of the persecution against heretics became the witch. This was not the end of the heretic movement, however. Its final consummation came in 1533 with the help of the Anabaptists to set up a city of God in the German town of Münster. This was crushed with a bloodbath, followed by a wave of merciless reprisals that affected proletarian struggles all over Europe. Until then, neither the fierce persecution, nor nor the demonization of heresy could prevent the dissemination of heretic beliefs. As Antonio Di Stefano writes, Excommunication, the confiscation of property, torture, death at the stake, the unleashing of crusades against heretics, none of these measures could undermine the immense vitality and popularity of the heretica pravitatis. There is not one commune, wrote James de Vitry at the end of the thir- at the beginning of the 13th century in which heresy does not have its supporters its defenders and believers even after the 1215 crusade against the albigensians that destroyed the cathars strongholds heresy together with islam remained the main enemy and threat the church had to face its recruits came from all walks of life the peasantry the lower ranks of the clergy who identified with the poor and brought their struggle, to their struggles the language of the gospel, the town burglars, and even the lesser nobility. But popular heresy was primarily a lower-class phenomenon. The environment in which it flourished was the rural and urban proletariat, peasants, cobblers, and cloth workers, to whom it preached equality, fomenting their spirit of revolt with prophetic and apocalyptic tr- predictions. We get a glimpse of the popularity of the heretics from the trials which the Inquisition was still conducting in the 1330s in the Trento region, northern Italy, against those who had given hospitality to the apostolics when their leader, Fra Dolcino, had passed through the area 30 years before. At the time of his coming, many doors had opened to give Dolcino and his followers' shelter. Again, in 1304, when announcing the coming of a holy reign of poverty and love, Fra Dolcino set up a community among the mountains of the Varsilis, Piedmont. The local peasants, already in revolt against the Bishop of Vercelli, gave him their support. For three years, the Dolcinians resisted the crusades and the blockade the bishop mounted against them, with women in male attire fighting side by side with men. In the end, they were defeated only by hunger and by the overwhelming superiority of the forces the church mobilized against them. On the day when the troops amassed by the bishop of Vercelli finally prevailed upon them, more than a thousand heretics perished in the flames, or in the river, or by the sword, in the cruelest of deaths. Dolcino's companion, Margarita, was slowly burned to death before his eyes because she refused to abjure. Dolcino himself was slowly driven among the mountain roads and gradually torn to pieces to provide a salutary example to the local population.
1: Urban Struggles Not only women and men, but peasants and urban workers found in the heretic movement a common cause. This commonality of interest among people who could otherwise be assumed to have different concerns and aspirations can be accounted for on several grounds. First, in the Middle Ages, a tight relation existed between city and country. Many burghers were ex serfs who had moved or fled to the city in hopes of better life and, while exercising their art, continued to work the land, particularly at harvest time. Their thoughts and desires were still profoundly shaped by the life of the village and by their continuing relationship to the land. Peasants and urban workers also brought together by the fact that they were subjected to the same political rulers since, by the 13th century, especially in northern and central Italy, the landed nobility and the urban patrician merchants were becoming assimilated, functioning as one power structure. This situation promoted among workers mutual concerns and solidarity. Thus, whenever peasants rebelled, they found beside themselves the artisans and the day laborers, as well as the growing mass of urban poor. This is the case during the peasant revolt in Maritime Flanders, which began in 1323 and ended June 1328 after the King of France and the Flemish nobility defeated the rebels at Cassel in 1327. As David Nicholas writes, the rebels' ability to continue the conflict for five years is conceivable only in light of the city's involvement. He adds that, by the end of 1324, the peasants in revolt had been joined by the craftsmen at Ypres and Bruges. Bruges, by now under the control of a Weaver and Fuller party, took direction of the revolt from the peasants. A war of propaganda began, as monks and preachers told the masses that a new era had come and that they were the equals of the aristocrats. Another peasant-urban worker alliance was that of the Tuchins, a movement of bandits operating in the mountains of central France, in which artisans joined an organization that was typical of the rural populations. What united peasants and artisans was a common aspiration to the leveling of social differences. As Norman Cohn writes, this is evidenced in documents of various kinds. From the proverbs of the poor that lament that the poor man works always, worries and labors and weeps, never laughing from his heart, while the rich man laughs and sings. From the miracle plays where it is stated that each man ought to have as much property as every other, and we have nothing we can call our own, the great lords have all the property, and poor folk have nothing but suffering and adversity. From the most widely read satires which denounced that magistrates, provosts, beadles, mares, nearly all live by robbery. They all batten on the poor, they all want to despoil them. the strong robs the weaker. or again, good working men make wheaten bread, but they will never chew it. No, all they get is the siftings from the corn, and from good wine they get nothing but the dregs, from the good cloth, nothing but the chaff. Everything that is tasty and good goes to the nobles and the clergy. These complaints show how deep was the popular resentment against the inequalities that existed between the big birds and the small birds the fat people and the lean people, as rich and poor were referred to in Florentine political idiom of the 14th century. Nothing will be well in England until we are of the same condition, John Ball proclaimed during his drive to organize the 1381 English peasant rising. As we have seen, the main expressions of this aspiration to a more egalitarian society were the exaltation of poverty and the communism of goods, but the affirmation of an egalitarian perspective was also reflected in a new attitude towards work most evident among the heretic sects. On one side, we have a refusal-of-work strategy, such as that adopted by the French Waldenses, the poor of Lyon, and the members of some of the conventional orders, Franciscans, spirituals, who, wishing to be free from mundane cares, relied on begging and community support for their survival. On the other, we have a new valorization of work, particularly manual labor, that has achieved in its most conscious formulation the propaganda of the English Lollards, who reminded their followers that, The nobles have beautiful horses, we have only work and hardships, but it is from our work that everything comes. Undoubtedly, the appeal to the value of work, a novelty in a society dominated by a military class, functioned primarily as a reminder of the arbitrariness of feudal power, but this new awareness also demonstrates the emergence of new social forces that played a crucial role in the downfall of the feudal system. The valorization of work reflects the formulation of an urban proletariat made up in part of journeymen and apprentices working under artisan masters producing for the local market but mostly by waged day laborers employed by rich merchants and industries producing for export by the turn of the 14th century in Florence Siena and Flanders concentrations of up to 4000 such day laborers weavers fuller's dyers could be found in the textile industry. For them, life in the city was just a new type of serfdom, this time under the rule of the cloth merchants, who exercised the strictest control over their activities in the most despotic class rule. Urban wage workers could not form any associations and were even forbidden to meet in any place and for any reason. They could not carry arms or even the tools of their trade, and they could not strike on the pain of death In Florence, they had no civil rights. Unlike the journeymen, they were not part of any craft or guild, and they were exposed to the cruelest abuses at the hands of the merchants who, in addition to controlling the town government, ran their private tribunal and, with impunity, spied on them, arrested them, tortured them, and hanged them at the least sign of trouble. It is among these workers that we find the most extreme forms of social protest and the greatest exception of heretic ideas. Throughout the 14th century, particularly in the Flanders, cloth workers were engaged in constant rebellions against the bishop, the nobility, the merchants, and even the major crafts. At Bruges, when the main crafts gained power in 1348, wool workers continued to rebel against them. At Ghent, in 1335, a revolt by the local bourgeoisie was overtaken by a rebellion of weavers, who tried to establish a worker's democracy based on the suppression of all authorities except those living by manual labour. Defeated by an impressive coalition of forces, including the prince, the nobility, the clergy, and the bourgeoisie, the weavers tried again in 1378, when they succeeded in establishing what, with some exaggeration perhaps, has been called the first dictatorship of the proletariat known in history. Their goal, according to Peter Boissonnade, was to raise journeymen against masters, wage earners against great entrepreneurs, peasants against lords and clergies. It was said that they had contemplated the extermination of the whole bourgeois class with the exception of children of six and the same for nobles. They were defeated only by a battle in the open field at Rusbeck in 1382, where 26,000 of them lost their lives. The events at Bruges and Ghent were not isolated cases. In Germany, and Italy as well, the artisans and laborers rebelled at every possible occasion, forcing the local bourgeoisie to live in a constant state of fear. In Florence, the workers seized power in 1379, led by the Sionpi, day laborers in the Florentine textile industry. They too established a workers' government, but it lasted only a few months before being completely defeated um, by 1382. The workers at Liège in the Low Countries were more successful. In 1384, the nobility and the rich, the great as they were called, incapable of continuing a resistance which they had lasted for more than a century, capitulated. From then on, the crafts completely dominated the town becoming the arbiter of the municipal government. The craftsmen had also given support to the Peasants' Revolt in Maritime Flanders, in a struggle that lasted from 1323 to 1328, which Pérenne describes as a genuine attempt at a social revolution. Here, according to a Flemish contemporary whose class allegiance is apparent, the plague of insurrection was such that men became disgusted with life. Thus, from 1320 to 1332, The good people of Ypres implored the king not to allow the town's inner bastions, within which they lived, to be demolished because they protected them from the common people.
0: The Black Death and the Labour Crisis A turning point in the course of the medieval struggles was the Black Death, which killed, on an average, between 30% and 40% of the European population. Coming in the wake of the Great Famine of 1315 to 1322 that weakened people's resistance to disease, this unprecedented demographic collapse profoundly changed Europe's social and political life, practically inaugurating a new era. Social hierarchies were turned upside down because of the leveling effects of the widespread morbidity. Familiarity with death also undermined social discipline. Confronted with the possibility of sudden death, people no longer cared to work or to abide by social and sexual regulations, but tried to have the best of times, feasting for as long as they could without thought of the future. However, the most important consequence of the plague was the intensification of the labor crisis generated by the class conflict, for the decimation of the workforce made labor extremely scarce critically increased its cost and stiffened people's determination to break the shackles of feudal rule. As Christopher Dyer points out, the scarcity of labor which the epidemic caused shifted the power relation to the advantage of the lower classes. When land had been scarce, the peasants could be controlled by the threat of expulsion. But after the population was decimated and land became abundant, the threats of the lords ceased to have any serious effect, as the peasants could now freely move and find new land to cultivate. Thus, while the crops were rotting and livestock watered in the fields, peasants and artisans suddenly became masters of the situation. A symptom of this new development was the growth of red strikes, bolstered by threats of mass exodus to other lands or to the city. As the manorial records laconically registered, the peasants refused to pay, They also declared that they will not follow the customs any longer, and ignored the orders of the lords to repair their houses, clean ditches, or chase escaped serfs. By the end of the 14th century, the refusal of rent and services had become a collective phenomenon. Entire villages jointly organized to stop paying fines, taxes, and telage, and no longer recognized the commuted services or the injunctions of the manorial courts, which were the main instrument of feudal power. In this context, the quantity of rent and services withheld became less important than the fact that the class relation, on which the feudal order was based, was subverted. This is how an early 16th-century writer, whose words reflect the viewpoint of the nobility, summed up the situation. The peasants are too rich and do not know what obedience means. They don't take law into any account, they wish there were no nobles, and they would like to decide what rent we should get for our lands. In response to the increased cost of labor and the collapse of the feudal rent, various attempts were made to increase the exploitation of work, either through the restoration of labor services, or in some cases, the revival of slavery. In Florence, the importation of slaves was authorized in 1366, but such measures only sharpened the class conflict. In England, it was an attempt by the nobility to contain the cost of labor, by means of a labor statute limiting the maximum wage that caused the peasant rising of 1381. This spread from region to region and ended with thousands of peasants marching from Kent to London to talk to the king. Also in France, between 1379 and 1382, there was a whirlwind of revolution. Proletarian insurrections exploded at Béziers, where 40 weavers and cord wainers were hanged. In Montpellier, the workers in revolt proclaimed that, by Christmas we will sell Christian flesh at six pence a pound. Revolts broke out in Carcassonne, Orléans, Amiens, Tournai, Rouen, and finally in Paris, where in 1413, a workers' democracy came into power. In Italy, the most important revolt was that of the Ciompi. It began in July of 1382, when cloth workers in Florence for a time forced the bourgeoisie to give them a share of government and declare a moratorium on all debts incurred by wage earners they were then proclaimed they then proclaimed what in essence was a dictatorship of the proletariat god's people though one soon crushed by the combined forces of the nobility and the bourgeoisie now is the time the sentence that recurs in the letters of John Ball well illustrates the spirit of the european proletariat at the close of the 14th century a time when in florence The Wheel of Fortune was beginning to appear on the walls of taverns and workshops to to symbolize the imminent change of lot. In the course of this process, the political horizon and the organizational dimensions of the peasant and artisan struggle abounded. Entire regions revolted, forming assemblies and recruiting armies. At times, the peasants organized in bands attacking the castles of the lords and destroyed the archives where the written marks of their servitude were kept. By the 15th century, the confrontation between the peasants and the nobility turned into true wars, much like that of the Remensas in Spain that lasted from 1462 to 1486. In Germany, a cycle of peasant wars began in 1476 with the conspiracy led by Hans the Piper. This escalated into four bloody rebellions led by Wundstuch Peasant Union between 1493 and 1517, and culminating in a full-fledged war that lasted from 1522 to 1525, spreading over four countries. In all these cases, the rebels did not content themselves with demanding some restrictions to feudal rule, nor did they bargain for better living conditions. Their aim was to put an end to the power of the lords. As the English peasants declared during the Peasant Rising of 1381, the old law must be abolished. Indeed, by the beginning of the 15th century, in England at least, serfdom or villanage was almost completely disappeared though the revolt had been politically and militarily defeated and its leaders leaders brutally executed. What followed has been described as the golden age of the European proletariat, a far cry from the canonic representation of the 15th century, which has been iconographically immortalized as a world under the spell of the dance of death. Thorold Rogers has painted a utopian image of this period in his famous study of wages and living conditions in medieval Europe. At no time, Rogers writes, were wages in England so high and food so cheap. Workers sometimes were paid for every day of the year, although on Sunday and the main holidays, they did not work. They were also fed by their employers and were paid a viaticum, viaticum, for coming and going from home to work at so much per mile of distance. In addition, they demanded to be paid in money and wanted to work only five days a week. As we shall see, there were reasons to be skeptical about the extent of this cornucopia. However, for a broad section of the Western European peasantry, and for urban workers, the 15th century was a period of unprecedented power. Not only did the scarcity of labor give them the upper hand, but the spectacle of employers competing for their services strengthened their sense of self-value and erased centuries of degradation and subservience. The scandal of the high wages the workers demanded was only matched in the eyes of the employers by the new arrogance they displayed. Their refusal to work or to continue to work after having satisfied their needs which they now could do more quickly because of their higher wages. Their stubborn determination to hire themselves out only for limited tasks, rather than for prolonged periods of time. Their demands for other perks besides their wages, and their ostentatious clothing, which, according to the complaints of contemporary social critics, made them indistinguishable from the lords. Servants are now masters, and masters are servants complained John Gower in Miroir de l'Homme. The peasant pretends to imitate the ways of the freemen and gives himself the appearance of him in his clothes. The condition of the landless also improved after the Black Death. This was not just uh, an English phenomenon. In 1348, the canons of Normandy complained that they could not find anyone to cultivate their lands, who did not ask for more than which six servants had earned at the beginning of the century. Wages doubled and trebled in Italy, France, and Germany. In the lands of the Rhine and Danube, the daily agricultural wage became equivalent in purchasing power to the price of a pig or sheep, and these wage rates applied to women as well, for the differential between female and male earnings was drastically reduced in the wake of the Black Death. What this meant for the European proletariat was not only the achievement of a standard of living that remained unparalleled until the 19th century, but the demise of serfdom. By the end of the 14th century, land bondage had practically disappeared. Everywhere serfs were replaced by free farmers, copyholders or leaseholders, who would accept work only for a substantial reward.
1: Sexual Politics the rise of the state and counter-revolution. However, by the end of the 15th century, a counter-revolution was already underway at every level of social and political life. First, efforts were made by the political authorities to co-opt the youngest and most rebellious male workers by means of a vicious sexual politics that gave them access to free sex and turned class antagonism into an antagonism against proletarian women. As Jacques Rassaud has shown in medieval prostitution, in France, the municipal authorities practically decriminalized rape, provided the victims were women of the lower class. In 14th century Venice, the rape of an unmarried proletarian woman rarely called for more than a slap on the wrist, or even in the frequent case in which it involved a group assault. The same was true in most French cities. Here, the gang rape of a proletarian woman became a common practice which the perpetrators would carry out openly and loudly at night in groups of 2 to 15, breaking into the victims' homes or dragging their victims through the streets without any attempt to hide or disguise themselves. Those who engaged in these sports were young journeymen or domestic servants and the penniless sons of well-to-do families, while the women targeted were poor girls, working as maids or washerwomen, of whom it was rumored they were kept by their masters. On average, half the town male youth at some point engaged in these assaults, which Rousseau describes as a form of class protest, a means for proletarian men who were forced to postpone marriage for many years because of their economic conditions, to get back their own and take revenge against the rich. But the results were destructive for all workers, as the state-backed raping of poor women undermined the class solidarity that had been achieved in the anti-feudal struggle. Not surprisingly, the authorities viewed the disturbances caused by such policy uh, the brawls, the presence of the youth gangs roaming the streets at night in search of adventure and disturbing the public quiet, a small price to pay in exchange for the lessening of social tensions, obsessed as they were with the fear of urban insurrections, and believed the poor gained the upper hand they would take their wives and hold them in common. For proletarian women, so cavalierly sacrificed by masters and servants alike, the price to be paid was inestimable. Once raped, they could not easily regain their place in society, their reputation being destroyed. They would have to leave town or return to prostitution. But they were not the only ones to suffer. The legalization of rape created a climate of intense misogyny that degraded all women, regardless of class. It also desensitized the population to the perpetration of violence against women, preparing the ground for the witch hunt, which began in the same period. It was at the end of the 14th century that the first witch trials took place, and for the first time, the Inquisition recorded the existence of an all-female heresy and sect of devil-worshippers. Another aspect of the divisive sexual politics the princes and municipal authorities pursued to diffuse workers' protest was the institutionalization of prostitution, implemented through the opening of municipal brothels, and soon proliferating throughout Europe. Enabled by the contemporary high-wage regime, State-managed prostitution was seen as a useful remedy for the turbulence of proletarian youth, who in La Grande Maison, as the state brothel was called in France, could enjoy a privilege previously reserved for older men. The municipal brothel was also considered a remedy against homosexuality, which in several European towns, examples Padua and Florence, was widely widely and publicly practiced, but in the aftermath of the Black Death, was beginning to be feared as a cause of depopulation. Thus, between 1350 and 1450, publicly managed, tax-financed brothels were opened in every town and village in Italy and France, in numbers far superior to those reached in the 19th century. Amiens alone had 53 brothels in 1953. In addition, all the restrictions and penalties against prostitution were eliminated. Prostitutes could now solicit their clients in every part of town, even in front of the church during Mass. They were no longer bound to any particular dress codes or the wearing of distinguishing marks because prostitution was officially recognized as a public service. Even the church came to see prostitution as a legitimate activity. The state-managed brothel was believed to provide an antidote to the orgiastic sexual practices of the heretic sex and to be a remedy for sodomy as well as a means to protect family life. It is difficult, retrospectively, to tell how far playing the sex card helped the state to discipline and divide the medieval proletariat. What is certain that the sexual New Deal was part of a broader process which, in response to the intensification of social conflict, led to the centralization of the state as the only agent capable of confronting the generalization of the struggle and safeguarding the class relation. In this process, as we will see later in this work, the state became the ultimate manager of class relations and the supervisor of the reproduction of labor power, a function that has continued to perform to this day. In this capacity, state officers passed laws in many countries that set limits on the cost of labor, by fixing the maximum wage, forbid vagrancy, now harshly punished, and encouraged workers to reproduce. Ultimately, the mounting class conflict brought about a new alliance between the bourgeoisie and the nobility, without which proletarian revolts may not have been defeated. It is difficult, in fact, to accept the claim, often made by historians, according to which these struggles had no chance of success due to the narrowness of their political horizons and the confused nature of their demands in reality the objectives of the peasants and artisans were quite transparent they demanded that every man should have as much as another and in order to achieve this goal they joined with all those who had nothing to lose acting in concert in different regions not afraid to confront the well-trained armies of the nobility despite their lack of military skills If they were defeated, it was because all the forces of feudal power, the nobility, the church, and the bourgeoisie, moved against them united, despite their traditional divisions, by their fear of the proletarian rebellion. Indeed, the image that has been handed down to us of a bourgeoisie perennially at war with the nobility and carrying on its banners the call for equality and democracy is a distortion. By the late Middle Ages, wherever we turn, from Tuscany to England and the Low Countries, we find the bourgeoisie already allied with the nobility in the suppression of the lower classes. For in the peasants, and the democratic weavers and cobblers of its cities, the bourgeoisie recognized an enemy far more dangerous than the nobility, one that made it worthwhile for the burghers to even sacrifice their cherished political autonomy. Thus, it was the urban bourgeoisie, after two centuries of struggles waged in order to gain full sovereignty within the wall of its communes, who reinstituted the power of the nobility by voluntarily submitting to the rule of the prince, the first step on the road to the absolute state.